All right, thank you, Jeff. We are going to be studying that section, but then going all the way through the end of verse 30 this morning. So that's going to be our passage of Scripture all the way through the end of verse 30. All right, let's ask the Lord again for his guidance as we study his word. Lord, we come together this morning, and we have your word in front of us on our screens or um, on paper. Again, thank you for preserving it for us now, 2,000 years later, able to study it, able to receive it, and then by your spirit, apply it. And so we ask for just your help, your assistance today, your leading in our lives with this. In Jesus' name, amen. So in starting the sermon, another question to consider this morning When it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we need forgiveness of sins through Christ alone, when it comes to sharing that message with unbelievers, what is the most difficult part for you? Is it that as you share the gospel message, You anticipate an objection that's raised. Maybe you know that they've got a spiritual pistol loaded with ammo, ready to fire at any of your arguments, ready to take you down. So there's a sense of embarrassment that might come. Is it that you're not sure exactly how they are going to respond to you as an individual afterwards? After all, you know, faith and politics are supposed to be left off the table. And when it comes to something as personal as faith in Jesus Christ, are they going to shame you? Is it that they are going to reject you? Is it that you should expect people to agree with your message and turn to Jesus and be saved when you share the gospel? Uh, Jesus made this statement in Matthew 22, verse 14. He said that many are going to be called, but few are going to be chosen. And his point is that the message of repentance, which we will talk about in just a moment, is going to go out like an announcement, like a loudspeaker. It, it goes out and the sound waves The message of repentance travels far and wide, but in truth, few will actually be moved along by God in such a way that they have a desire to respond to it, a desire to repent. As you go throughout the scripture, especially the gospels in the book of Acts, you will see the call of the gospel for people to repent and follow Jesus. You will see that call go out far and wide. And there are seasons, like the day of Pentecost, where several thousand were added to the church. But far and wide, the messengers are persecuted, and many will reject it. So when we share the gospel with people, is there a hesitancy among us because of fear of rejection? So why even go there if we anticipate rejection? Or maybe we just believe in the doctrine of election. So, after all, if they're chosen, let somebody else just share it with them. 
Well, here's the big idea for our sermon this morning. When you proclaim the gospel of repentance, you will experience rejection and reception. When you proclaim the gospel of repentance, you will experience rejection and reception. If you're joining us, we're going through the gospel of Mark um, week by week here. And what we've seen is Mark opens up his book telling us who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the Deliverer, the one who has come to rescue people from their sins. And he's also the Son of God. And so we see Mark unpacking Jesus' identity for us as we go through the Gospel of Mark. In particular, his role as Deliverer, the one who delivers us from our sins, comes to bear on this passage this morning. More recently in our studies, Jesus has spent time with these 12 men. They're called the disciples. When he sends them out, he's going to call them apostles. We'll see that later on. He spent time with them along the Sea of Galilee. That's been the primary place where Jesus has been teaching, and crowds of people have been coming to him. So his disciples are getting a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. They have seen him do miracles where people who've been demon-possessed have been healed, lepers have been healed. They have also seen him be attacked by the religious leaders. They have seen how Jesus has responded to each of those attacks. And now, Jesus is coming alongside of them and saying, okay, it's time for you to get a little practice yourselves. The aim of my ministry is not to keep you with me all along the way, I am raising you up to send you out. And so we come to this passage. It's the first launch for Jesus' disciples. There's three points to the sermon. I'll give them to you as we go through. The first one is simply the requirement for the messengers, these disciples who are going out, the requirements for the messengers. So Jesus is going to send them out. In verse 7, we see that he is sending them out two by two. There's wisdom in that. Individuals left to themselves are more prone to fear and discouragement, perhaps even quitting when they're on their own. When you go out in twos, you can make good use of each other's gifts. In Jewish culture, two individuals were important because according to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So when you think about the disciples going out, they are giving witness to Jesus Christ. They are testifying to what they have seen in Jesus Christ. So here, two or three witnesses must come along and testify to this. As he sends them out, he gives them authority over the demons. The disciples are given this authority to act in ways that demonstrate or validate the kingdom of God. So here's the message. Jesus is the deliverer. How should we know that he is the deliverer? Well, here are signs, these miracles. And these miracles are done in Jesus' name. So they validate, these signs validate the message. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus tells them what to take along. He instructs them to take very little on their journey. When you get ready to go on a trip, you pull out the suitcase, you go over to the dresser, and you start pulling out, here's the shirts, you put them on the bed there, there's the pants, there's the shorts, there's the socks, there's the underwear, all of this stuff ends up on the bed. But when Jesus sends them out, they're only supposed to take four things. Number one, they're supposed to take their staff, probably do a lot of walking, 
Number two, remember your belt. Keep that around your waist. Number three, he says that they are to wear sandals. That's in verse nine. And then also just one tunic. Oftentimes, folks would travel in one set of garments. They'd get to their destination, put another set of garments on. And so here, they're just going to keep one garment. And perhaps it's because Jesus knows you're going to stay on the move here. He doesn't give an explanation for it. What's interesting is that these four items that Jesus lists out here for them to take are the same items that the Jews were to have on hand when they were leaving Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 11, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And the point was that they would need to be ready to go, but also that God would be providing for them. So in this journey here that Jesus is sending his disciples out, he wants his disciples to know that this is not going to be flashy. It's going to be a mission that is ultimately empowered and provided by God. In verse 10, we see Jesus' words. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In other words, he doesn't want them hopping around. If they have an audience, just take time with that particular audience. Focus on the ones who will receive you. He goes on to say this. If any place they will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So there was a custom with the Jews when they traveled abroad and then they came back home to their home country. There was a custom where they would shake the dust off of their garments when they came back home as a reminder that they had been in places where God was rejected. And so now on their way back home, they're, they're, they're dusting off the filth, if you will, of where they have been. These people have rejected God. I'm back home where people do accept God. And so when the disciples are going out, people are going to reject God. They can say, okay, as a sign and testimony, I'm shaking the dust off my feet. You've rejected God, but we're moving onward and forward in obedience to God. In verses 12 and 13, we find the message of their ministry. Verse 12, we see that they were to proclaim, here's the, the message of repentance. Okay, so this is where we start to get into it. Repentance is the theme here. It's Mark's first message that John presents. In Mark 1.4, we know that John appears on the scene. He's baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a message or a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's first words are, folks, you must repent. Skip down a few verses to verse 14 of Mark chapter 1. Jesus' first words, he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The very first words of John the Baptist and Jesus in the gospel of Mark are this, these words, this word, repent. This Word of repentance is the message preached throughout the New Testament to the world, to those who don't know Jesus. You must repent. So Jesus went on to say, Luke 13, verse 3, I tell you, but unless you repent, speaking to a group of unbelievers, you all will likewise perish. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, 
Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins might be blotted out. Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. This is when Paul was in Athens. But now he commands all people everywhere to do what? He's speaking to a group of unbelievers. Repent. Acts 20, verse 21, Paul recounting his journeys, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. What was he testifying? He was saying, you must repent towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then when Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 2, verse 5, he was speaking to an audience that he's anticipating rejecting him in chapter 2. He's setting up kind of a, Uh, an argument here that's going to come from them and now he's responding to them and he says but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart what's happening you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God all right so here's what we see coming through here Jesus is telling his message his uh, disciples go out and proclaim repentance to people is this just some sort of one-off message that's comes and goes. No, as you look at scripture over and over again, Jesus is proclaiming repentance. The apostles are proclaiming repentance. This is the message of evangelism. So what does repentance mean? If this is foundational to gospel witness, when we use that word repentance, what are we saying to people? If they were to say, hey, you're telling me repent. I get it. That's a Six-letter word here. What do you mean by repent? Well, here's just a simple understanding of repentance. It means to have a serious change of mind and heart about a previous point of view. Now, biblical repentance is having a serious change of mind, a serious change of heart to Jesus. You were focused on something before. And now biblical repentance is not just, okay, clean up your act and do better this week. A lot of people, a lot of people in the world this week are going to go, are going to get so sick and tired of what they've been stewing in. And so they're going to make a form of repentance. They're going to say, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of being lazy. Or I'm tired of having a bad attitude. I just need to have a better attitude. So tomorrow I'm repenting from that. And I'm going to be a new me. I'm going to exercise and I'm going to read self-help books that make me feel better about myself. What are they repenting to? They're only repenting to themselves. Biblical repentance is, man, I've had a miserable week or I've had an okay week. I'm a pretty good person. All of this over here, this whole gamut over here, Biblical repentance says, I am turning from all of this, not to a better me, not to more self-help books. I'm turning from all of this to faith in Jesus Christ and following him. That's the message that is going out here. And so you have to remember for the disciples, this is going to be difficult because they're going to these little villages all around the Sea of Galilee and those people in those villages are Jews and they're expecting a deliverer. They're expecting a king to come. And their message is, You need to repent from what you're expecting and turn to Jesus of Nazareth. This one man is whom you're supposed to be trusting in and following. 
This message, the message of repentance, is what we are ultimately proclaiming today. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, those verses that I read earlier that were up on the screen, those are verses that God would bring to you this morning and say, you must repent of where you have been and you must lay hold of Jesus Christ in faith today for the forgiveness of your sins. Every Christian, every Christian has practiced repentance. Perfectly? Not at all. None of us have practiced repentance perfectly. In fact, so if this is the direction that we're going, following Jesus Christ today, most of us in here this morning would say, we're, we're following Jesus. We're holding on to the back, and we're following Jesus along, and at times we let go, and we sin, and we start turning this way. But repentance means I'm coming back again. You think about the example of King David. This guy has epic sins in his life. I mean, sins that are so well known that we hear about them today. A lot of the world would remember, wasn't he the dude that messed around with that guy's wife? Yes, that's him. And what does he do in Psalm 51? He repents. And he comes back to his Lord and follows him faithfully. And so whether you're a non-Christian repenting for the first time, or whether you're a Christian who has let go, all of us are called to repentance to follow Jesus faithfully. This is the message that the disciples were proclaiming. It's our message today as well. We preach a message of repentance from anything and everything to Jesus alone. Now, verse 13, he wraps up this little section and says that they were casting out many demons. He had given them authority, anointed them, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And again, that verse is there to remind you that the message comes with a validation. Some are going to say, show me that your message is true. Okay, here's the miracles. And Jesus would often use miracles to authenticate, to validate the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Jesus that has come. All right, so now we move on to point number two, the rejection of the message. The rejection of the message. Let me step back for just a moment and give you the layout of what's going on so you can see that Mark is intentionally putting these stories together. In verses 7 through 13, you see Jesus commissioning his disciples to go out and preach repentance. Now, go down to verse 30 in your text you see the return. The apostles returned to Jesus and told, them, told him all that they had done and taught. Okay, so he sends them out, and then you've got this section in between, and then you've got verse 30 where they come back, and you're like, well, why didn't he just put verse 30 down at verse 14? Why didn't he just finish the story there? I think I'll answer that in a little bit, but what he's doing is he's inserting the meat of a sandwich. He's got the pieces of bread on both ends. Here's the substance that he wants us to see. So this middle section is going to have a purpose for why it's here. And I'll get to that purpose as we go. All right, so the rejection of the message. So in verse 14, this is a crazy story, and you'll enjoy this. Uh, we're introduced to a new character. His name is King Herod. 
He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. That was the Herod who was on the throne when Jesus was born. Now, don't be confused. There's approximately five Herods that are named in Scripture. So these are not all the same Herods that uh, you would come across in Acts either. This is Herod the Great's son uh, who is ruling and reigning over the region of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus has been carrying out his ministry. When the disciples of Jesus are sent out to do what they did in verses 7 through 13, Uh, It's like little fires started popping up all over the region of Galilee. People started talking about it. Signs were being done, and, you know, people from one village would go to the other and say, hey, we're seeing this or we're hearing this. And, And a lot of the talk is that something is happening here. And the response, you see the response in the middle of verse 14 where it says that some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, others said... Well, this guy that they're talking about, Jesus, he is Elijah. And others, here's a third view. Others said, this guy that these disciples are talking about, no, he's just a prophet like one of the prophets of old. All right, so you get the impression that there's a lot of chatter going on. And everybody's having views about who this Jesus is. John the Baptist? No, he's Elijah. He's back. John the Baptist, he's dead. He's been raised from the dead, I guess. No, he's one of the prophets of old. All right. Back to Herod. What does Herod think about Jesus? Verse 16, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And now you ask the question, why was John beheaded? That's what Mark answers for us. Next 13 verses, we get to hear the story of how John was rejected and killed due to his proclamation of repentance. So in verses 17 and 18, we see that Herod was part of John's killing. It says here, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. Okay, this is Kardashian drama, big time right now. (laughs) A lot is going on. Here's what's taking place. Herod is ruling up around the Sea of Galilee. And he's got a wife, but he's kind of tired of her. His brother has got another wife named Herodias. Herod, over here that I just talked about, I'm going to call him Antipas, because that's his name. Herod's his title. Antipas looks over at his sister-in-law and is like, I think I want her for my wife. So he gets Herodias to divorce Philip, if I remember that name, if that was right. Philip. So she starts divorcing Philip, and Antipas has to jilt his wife, so he divorces her. And what we see now are these two hooking up, Antipas and Herodias. All right, so that's the story that's going on. But keep in mind, um, people know about this. This is public. Now, what you see in verse 17 is that Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Why did he do that? For the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, there it was, Philip's wife, because he had married her. Okay, well, what's the big deal with that? Here's the big deal. Verse 18. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful 
for you to have your brother's wife. Now, this would not be the first time that a political ruler had been disagreed with. Leaders are disagreed with all the time. The problem that Herod is facing is that he is ruling in a place that is filled with a whole bunch of Jews. Jews who follow the law. And so John is talking to all the people and using his pulpit, his platform to say, what we see in Herod's life is against the law. It's sinful. Well, as that unfolds, Herodias is struck to her heart. She doesn't like it. In verse 19, it says that Herodias had a grudge against him, that's against John, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why couldn't she put John to death? Verse 20. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, folks say that Antipas was, um, I mean, not trying to be funny, just kind of psycho, like erratic at times with his behavior. And, and you can see this even in this passage here, where Herod feared John. He knows that John has influence with his people that he's ruling over. So he's got that fear. He knows that he's a righteous man, like a religious man. Maybe he's got mystical power, something like that. He keeps him safe in prison, but occasionally he would go down to prison and maybe cross his arms like this because he was perplexed about what John was saying. And it even says here, he heard him gladly. And you can see, like, something's going on with Antipas here where it's just a confusing sort of relationship that he has with, with John, amused by him. Doesn't want to put him to death. Moving on, in verse 21, we see a dance that leads to death. As the story unfolds, Herod holds this huge birthday party. And at this birthday party, all the who's who gets invited. It says here in verse 21 that the nobles and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee are invited to this birthday party. So we're assuming it's somewhat of a palace, a a large house that he has everybody invited to. And at this birthday party, Herodias' daughter gets up and does a dance. There's a lot of debate about this. Was it some sort of erotic thing? Was it a ballet thing? The text is silent, so let's just say we don't know. We'll be silent on it. She dances, and at the end of this, Herod and all of the who's who that are there, they loved it. It says in verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So you can see them all applauding this. In the middle of verse 22, it says, And the king said to the girl, so here's Herod saying to Herodias' daughter, In light of your dance, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her. Now this is important. He makes a promise to her. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. 
Now, I don't think that Herod was free to give away the emperor's land. I think that's an expression there saying, if I can give it to you, I absolutely will. And so the daughter here in verse 24 says, I should go ask mama. So in verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, Herodias, for what should I ask, mom? Well, in verse 25, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 24, mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the daughter comes back in, verse 25, immediately with haste to the king and asked saying this. And it's interesting how the Greek text reads. I'm just going to read it literally, kind of word-for-word translation. She says, Herod and all the nobles there, I desire that at once you give to me upon a platter the head of, and this has got to catch everybody's attention now, John the Baptist. And oh, Herod is trapped as a leader. All the who's who who are there had heard his vow to the daughter. And yet he has not wanted to kill John. He's got a scorned wife who wants John's head. He's got a number of guests who have heard his commitment. And in verse 26 now, it says that he was sorry that he had made that oath. He had made a promise. He feels compelled to keep it. And in verse 27, the text says that immediately this king, that is Herod, sent an execution with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. I mean, here we are in this room, and this request is made. Herod might pause for just a moment. Is there any way out of it? Nope. He sends the order, and then not long after, somebody walks down the aisle with a platter. Just gross. So Herodias, the woman of bitterness, has just won a feud between her and John. Herod, a king characterized by fickle behavior and poor judgment, he's learning the lesson of making an impulsive oath. John is now dead for proclaiming the gospel of repentance. Herod, what you have done is sin. It's not lawful. You need to turn from your sin. In verse 29, we see that his disciples came and took his body and found a tomb for it. That's the end of the story. Now, back online to the first story, Jesus sending his messengers out. So point number three, the report of the mission, and this is just brief here. The report of the mission, verse 30, is the apostles returned. And by the way, the reason why he uses the term apostles is because the term apostle means sent one. Later on, we'll talk about capital A apostle for those who were with Jesus. But these is, it's the idea of you've been sent out, you're returning back, and they told him all that they had done and taught. Right? That's the end of the story. So what is Mark doing? Okay, let's go back and look at the structure for a minute. 
A big picture here is that he has sandwiched the event of John the Baptist right into the middle of the disciples' account. Both the disciples and John the Baptist, they were both sent by God. And they have very different outcomes, but who gets the bulk of the material here? The bulk of the material is given over to John the Baptist, perhaps because the bulk of the time is going to result in rejection, not reception. One author says it this way, the structure that Mark is giving us here draws mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death into an inseparable relationship. Another author says that the way that this is sandwiched together shows that the true discipleship is one of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Mark is showing us the reality of being a disciple of Jesus who will faithfully proclaim repentance. The disciples go out and see awesome things take place. We're led to conclude that this was an exciting time for them. Being a gospel witness for Jesus can be filled with excitement. It really can be. As you proclaim the message of repentance, some will hear the message. Some will receive the message. And you'll get to see the power of God and his truth transform a life. It's kind of like watching a new baby come into the world. You're seeing a new person, like a new creation in that individual. So a little advertisement. Next Sunday night, Larry Salisbury is going to be here. He's ministering in Southeast Asia. He's going to share with us, and I'll just give you a brief commercial, about a man named Henry who's been going into a very closed country proclaiming the gospel, and people are just coming to Christ at this time. Maybe it's a short window. People are just coming to Christ quite a bit, and we'll get to hear the story. That's exciting to hear. But Mark is not going to leave you under the impression that the gospel of repentance, when it's proclaimed, is welcomed everywhere and in everyone's life with an attitude of gratitude. And that's why John's story is inserted here. Some will respond with repentance and reception, but others, when told to repent, many times are going to respond with hardened hearts. And you think, well, why is that? Can you just explain, why is it that some will respond with hardened hearts? Well, if you take Herodias here, what was her identity? Her identity is, I'm married to Herod. Who cares how I got there? And now John comes along, and he starts poking the truth into her identity. And saying, who you are is a sinner. Herodias has the wrong identity. What she needs to be doing is turning from that which is unlawful and turning to Jesus for her identity. Biblically, you have to get this understanding. God created us to be in a relationship with him. Our identity is that we are human beings created by God meant to be in a relationship with him. What do humans do with that in their sin? They say, forget it. I don't want the relationship with God. I don't want the identity with God. In fact, I'm going to make my own identity. And so you can see how this trickles down into our current culture. I don't want God's truth. Here's my identity. I mean, do I have to spell it out anymore? And when you come along as a Christian... 
and you say, no, that is unlawful, they are saying, you are attacking me as a person because you're attacking who I am. You're attacking my identity. And as Christians, we're saying, no, you've got the wrong identity. That's not even an identity. It's not a valid identity. Here's the Here's the biblical identity. You've got to be in relationship with God. So repent from what you're doing. It's worthless. It's sin. You're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. They say, how dare you say that about me? And this is what Jesus was facing with the Pharisees. What was their identity? I'm morally good. And then you get to Matthew 25, and Jesus is pronouncing seven woes upon them, attacking them, showing them that their identity was completely wrong. And they say, enough of that. We want to kill you. When Christians proclaim the message of repentance, you have to realize that this is going down to the very deepest part of who people are and calling them to fundamentally change their view of themselves to a biblical view, a right, obedient view, to being in a relationship with God. Now, some of you have experienced the rejection. Some of you have grown children who have in large part abandoned you because you have shared with them the truth of repentance and you've held to it, not in some sort of judgmental way. You held to it truthfully and even graciously. You didn't reject them, but they say, because you believe that, I'm rejecting you. Some of you have family members who have rejected you because you have shared with them their need for repentance. You didn't reject them, you just shared the truth, and now they're distancing themselves from you. Young people, you're surrounded by people who are trying to find their identity. They are so desperate to have an identity. And so they'll take anything, anything that the world has to offer them. And this whole sexual revolution offers them an identity. Here's who I am, finally. I can find out who I am. I I can present myself to the world in this way. And when you come along and say, I'm sorry, I, I can't hold to that identity. I can't participate in that event because that is promoting an identity. You run the risk of being rejected. And that's what John the Baptist's story in the Gospel of Mark shows us. The risk of proclaiming repentance is rejection. The risk of holding to repentance is rejection. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said this, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And then he said this, you will be hated by all for my namesake. Are you willing to take that on? The risk of proclaiming repentance does come with rejection. But is there a reward to proclaiming repentance? Is there a reward to it? Let me give you four rewards to proclaiming repentance. Number one is simply this. You see the powerful effect of God's word in people's lives. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When you proclaim God's truth, you're not the one with the power. It's just God's truth that is like a scalpel that goes all the way down to the heart and affects people. 
It affects everyone's heart, and either it will crack it open and show people the truth about themselves so that they will turn to God, or you will see that the word of God has a hardening effect on people's lives. It offends them so deeply. But in all of this, you step back and say, that's the power of God's word on somebody's life. Second, you experience the pleasure of seeing God save people. We have to be proclaimers of repentance in order to see people receive the truth and follow Jesus. And when that happens, there is just the stand back pleasure of seeing it take place. Many of you are parents. You've seen children come into the world. And dads, okay, you didn't do anything to cause that, well, okay, maybe. But really, you didn't do anything to cause that baby to be born in that moment. Nothing. But you get to see all of this taking place. When it comes to our evangelism and our proclamation of repentance, all we do is we throw the truth out there, throw the truth out there, throw the truth out there, and God, through his Holy Spirit, does an amazing work in people's life. And all of a sudden, you start to see them go, oh, I start to see this. Oh, I should follow the Lord in this. Oh, I need to turn from this. And we're all joining together saying, yes, okay, that makes sense. I need to turn from this in my life, and I need to follow Jesus more faithfully. And it's a pleasure to see God at work saving people. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9, here's what Paul wrote to them. He said, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. And in that context, he was talking about how he came to them. He was gentle with them like a nursing mother, shared the gospel with them. And he says, now we just have joy over seeing what God has done in your life. Third, you know the peace of obedience to God. You know the peace of obedience to God. God has called his people into great commission work. And when we go out and faithfully obey God in the relationships that he has called us to, in proclaiming the gospel of repentance, there is a peace that God gives to us. I've never regretted sharing the gospel with anyone. Sure, my palms were sweaty. There were plenty of times where I backed out. But the times when I did share the gospel with people, never, ever any regrets. God comes along and says, here's peace for that. Number four, the prize of faithfulness to God. I think about the prize of faithfulness to God. Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. God is calling each of us to different relationships with different people. You will talk to people that other Christians won't talk to. And someday we stand before God and give an account with the talents, with the responsibilities that he has given to us. And we can anticipate the prize of faithfulness of hearing our Lord saying, well done, good and faithful servant. So in all of this, I want you to know that when you proclaim the gospel of repentance, you will experience both rejection and reception. But we're still sent. We still proclaim. I'm going to close with a story. In this book, it's called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. I would highly recommend it to you. The author is Mark Dever here. He opens up in his introduction with the following story. It's going to take a couple of minutes, but I think you'll appreciate the testimony here. 
John Harper was born in a Christian home in Glasgow, Scotland in 1872. When he was about 14 years old, he became a Christian himself, and from that time on, he began to tell others about Christ. At 17 years of age, he began to preach, going down the streets of his village and pouring out his soul in passionate pleading for men to be reconciled to God. After five or six years of toiling on street corners, preaching the gospel, and working in the mill during the day, Harper was taken in by the Reverend E.A. Carter of Baptist Pioneer Mission in London. This set Harper free to devote his whole time and energy to the work so dear to his heart, that is evangelism. Soon, in September of 1896, Harper started his own church. This church, which he began with just 25 members, numbered over 500 by the time he left 13 years later. During this time, he had been both married and widowed. Before he lost his wife, God blessed Harper with a beautiful little girl named Nana. I'll refer to her as Nana. Harper's life was an eventual one, eventful one. He almost drowned several times. When he was two and a half years of age, he fell into a well, but was resuscitated by his mother. At the age of 26, he was swept out to sea by a reverse current and barely survived. And at 32, he faced death on a leaking ship in the Mediterranean. If anything, these brushes with death simply seemed to confirm John Harper in his zeal for evangelism, which marked him out for the rest of the days of his life. While pastoring his church in London, Harper continued his fervent and faithful evangelism. In fact, he was such a zealous evangelist that the Moody Church in Chicago asked him to come over to America for a series of meetings. He did, and they went well. A few years later, Moody Church asked him if he would come back again. And so it was that Harper boarded a ship one day with a second-class ticket at Southampton, England, for the voyage to America. Harper's wife had died just a few years before, and he had with him his only child, Nana, age six. What happened after this, we know mainly from two sources. One is Nana, who died in 1986 at the age of 80. She remembered being woken up by her father a few nights into their journey. It was about midnight, and he said that the ship they were on had struck an iceberg. Harper told Nana that another ship was just out about there to rescue them, but as a precaution, he was going to put her in a lifeboat with an older cousin who had, accompanied, who had accompanied them. As for Harper, he would wait until the other ship arrived. The rest of the story is a tragedy well known. Little Nana and her cousin were saved, but the ship they were on was the Titanic. The only way we know what happened to John Harper after this is because in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, some months later, a young Scotsman stood up in tears and told the extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had been on the Titanic the night it struck the iceberg. He had clung to a piece of floating debris in the freezing waters. Suddenly, he said, a wave brought a man near, John Harper. He too was holding a piece of wreckage. He called out, man, are you saved? No, I am not, I replied. He shouted back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The Scotsman said, the waves bore Harper away, but a little later, he was washed back again beside me. Are you saved now, he called out. No, I answered. Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Then losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank, and there, alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am now John Harper's last convert.
I think John never knew what was going to happen after he proclaimed that message of faith and repentance in Jesus. Many of us this week, we're going to go into the week, and we're going to share things, and I'm praying that we have the boldness to share repentance. And you may never know what happens to that individual after you share the message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But we're called to that. In light of that, when you proclaim the gospel of repentance, at times there will be both reception and rejection. Let's be faithful in proclaiming that message this week. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we see that the Christian life is a message of dependence on you. We pray that you would help us as a church family just to be faithful to you in this. We ask that the people whom you've put into our lives, that you would cultivate their hearts. We ask that you would do the work so that the seed can be planted. We want to be faithful in scattering the seed, but we ask that you would give the increase. Just with your heads bowed for a moment, you might be a non-Christian here this morning. This morning, you need to repent. You need to turn from where you have been, and you need to trust Jesus as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins. You can do that in the quietness of your heart. And then Christian, we're commissioned, we're sent out. Has the fear of rejection kept you from proclaiming the message of repentance? Would you just ask God to lead you in obedience to him this week? Maybe being more bold, more dependent on the Lord, less concerned of what people think, and just more concerned about walking in obedience to him. Just talk to God in the quietness of your heart, and I'll come back and pray. So God, we ask for your help this week again. I pray that we as a church family would be faithful to you. I pray that our message would be faithful to you. And you know the fears that we face, but Lord, would you give us the courage and lead us to step out in faith, to share what needs to be shared with the people whom you've put into our lives. And so we ask for your help in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.